Hello again, everyone. This is Sam Ashu, and you are listening to Amplify January 2021. That's right. We made it. It is 2021, and this is our first episode of the year. I am so happy that you are here to join us. We are starting out the year with a bang. If you haven't noticed, emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice have a new format and color. The pictures pop off the page. The words just jump out at you. It is an amazing new format. Kudos to the entire EB Medicine team for making the change and the upgrade to the articles. If you are not a subscriber, you should be. They look amazing. And nothing makes it pop off the page more than the topic of this month's emergency medicine practice, STEMI. That's right, ST Elevation MI. There are EKGs and diagrams and beautiful color photos you have just got to see. Thank you so much to our three authors this month, Dr. Frank, Dr. Sanders, and Dr. Barry for putting together this outstanding article covering really the entire disease progression of ST elevation myocardial infarction. It really is a diagnosis that we see quite often, and sometimes it can feel like a cookbook scenario. Someone comes in with a STEMI, and they're whisked off to the cath lab, and they're in the emergency department really for five minutes. And if you work at one of those facilities, then fantastic. You've got the protocols down to make this treatment exceedingly easy for you, but there are some serious nuances, and the authors do a great job in this article of drawing attention to each of them. Epidemiology. So we start out the discussion with the epidemiological history of STEMI, which is really a discussion of why we care. It's a great section to the article, and again, I highly encourage you to read it, but there are some interesting numbers here, like there are over 200,000 STEMIs that present to the emergency department in the United States annually. And the incidence of STEMI is about 7.3 per 10,000 adults, which makes this a common disease process. And it's an important one because the risk-adjusted mortality ratio for those who are not hospitalized is 1.9 compared to those who are, which tells me that there's a high mortality for patients who don't get hospitalized who have STEMI. Seems like a no-brainer, but something that's important to quantify. Additionally, most of those patients are not going to present for an hour and a half to two hours after their symptoms have begun, and about 40% of them are going to come by private vehicle, not by ambulance. There's some very interesting numbers, and in your personal experience, you may not have seen that many STEMI patients come in by private vehicle, but that's a large percentage. Pathophysiology. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time discussing the pathophysiology here, but a couple of things to point out. There is a spectrum in acute coronary syndrome, and it includes both the ST elevation MI and the non-ST elevation MI. And in the course of that spectrum, about 70% are going to fit in the non-ST elevation category. That leaves us about 30% of patients who are going to fit into the category we're discussing today, the ST elevation MI. And these are patients who present with an acute atherosclerotic plaque rupture that causes a coronary artery occlusion. And so all of our treatment is going to be aimed at restoring flow through that blood vessel as soon as possible. 
and utilizing our EKG or ECG to identify the specific anatomy involved. If you are not accustomed to looking at ECGs regularly or recognizing those patterns for coronary anatomy correlation, I highly encourage you to go to the article and take a look at figure three. The authors have done a nice job of outlining which leads on the 12 lead correspond to specific coronary arteries. So you will see in that depiction that V1 through V4 are labeled as belonging to the left anterior descending or the LAD. V5 and V6 correspond to the circumflex or diagonal branch of the LAD as well as lead one and AVL. And then your inferior leads, 2, 3, and AVF, correspond to the right coronary artery in most patients. It's a good schematic to keep in your back pocket for the next time you are evaluating an ECG. Pre-hospital care. Now, if your patient is arriving to you by ambulance, which is about 60% of the population of STEMI patients coming to the emergency department, as we learned earlier, then these patients are coming with some treatment already initiated. Our authors come to us with significant pre-hospital EMS experience in medical direction and are quick to point out that paramedics are very capable of identifying STEMI in the field with sensitivity ranging from 71% all the way up to 97% in the literature and a specificity of 91 to 100%. So there really is no question about whether or not the training of pre-hospital personnel is sufficient to allow them to recognize STEMI. With adequate training, they do an excellent job, and they are an important part in the chain to alerting the cath lab early when a STEMI is recognized in the field. The goal for EMS agencies is to perform an ECG within 10 minutes of arrival to the patient, and that number may sound familiar because it's the same 10 minute time frame that we utilize for when a patient arrives to the emergency department to their first department ECG. Once a STEMI is recognized in the field, goal is then to transport the patient to a PCI center or the nearest PCI center. And depending on your area and the number of hospitals, there may be protocols in place to bypass hospitals and facilities in preference of the nearest PCI ready center. And so they may have to pass by a smaller hospital to get that patient to a cath lab. But as long as they can get that patient there within 30 minutes and that facility can then turn around and get that patient into the cath lab for a first contact to balloon time of less than 90 minutes, then the literature does support bypassing smaller facilities without an active cath lab. Now, while that patient is being transported, focuses on delivering the initial medications that have been proven to be of benefit. In this scenario, nothing is better than aspirin having shown a number needed to treat of 42. It is the best medication to give immediately and the one that EMS is focused on delivering as quickly as possible. Beyond aspirin, everything else is focused on relieving chest pressure and perhaps improving hypertension, and this is where sublingual nitroglycerin is beneficial, typically given at a dose of 0.4 milligrams every five minutes for a maximum of three doses. And this is all in route to the hospital, during which time, hopefully the paramedic is alerting the hospital of the recognition of the STEMI and the need to initiate the early activation of the cath lab. Emergency department care. The history. 
Taking an adequate history is nothing new to us, and when we're taking the history of a patient with chest pain, there are some things that specifically increase the likelihood of acute coronary syndrome. Things like radiation of pain to the shoulders, radiation of the pain to both arms, increase of the pain with exertion, or radiation to the left arm. Other symptoms that are important to elicit are things like diaphoresis, vomiting, weakness, and shortness of breath. Interestingly, about 8.5% of patients don't even present with chest pain as their chief complaint, and so the most common non-chest pain signs and symptoms were shortness of breath, sweating, nausea, and syncope, and that may be all that you have to alert you to the presence of a STEMI. And although the classic presentation is radiation of pain to the left arm or the jaw, the studies have shown us that radiation of pain to both arms actually has a specificity of 96%, though its sensitivity is only 11%. So if it's present, you should be thinking about STEMI. Physical examination. When it comes to the physical examination, you're not going to pick up on very much in the STEMI patient, but there are some important things to consider. So, for example, the incidence of AV block is about 7%, and the incidence of cardiogenic shock complicates anywhere from 5 to 10% of MI cases. So hemodynamic monitoring and continuous monitoring and reevaluation becomes very, very important in this population of patients. Diagnostic imaging. So one of the important things when it comes to STEMI care is to not delay movement of the patient to the cath lab. Therefore, we don't stop to do a lot of diagnostic testing. When it comes to imaging, we obtain a chest x-ray, but it's important to understand why we are obtaining that chest x-ray and what the limitations of that test really are. If you're looking for pneumonia or pneumothorax as the cause for chest pain, then a chest x-ray is an appropriate test. But if you're considering aortic dissection in the differential diagnosis, then you should know that a chest x-ray is only about 67% sensitive at best for detecting something of that sort. And if you have a high clinical suspicion that you should be progressing to CT angiography, but the emphasis here is on high clinical suspicion because we don't want to delay the progress of the patient to the cath lab, especially in this setting. Another diagnostic modality you might have at your disposal is bedside echocardiography. Sometimes cardiologists will rely on this tool to detect regional wall motion abnormalities. So if there is some doubt as to the diagnosis of STEMI, Echocardiography can be a helpful tool, but it's not diagnostic, meaning that regional wall motion abnormalities can be seen in focal myocarditis, previous infarcts, cardiomyopathies, in addition to the acute MI, and so it has to be placed in the correct clinical setting. One study cited by our authors includes 180 ED patients who were prospectively evaluated for regional wall motion abnormalities. About 93% of the MI patients had them, but about 43% of patients without MI had them. So again, it really needs to be taken in the global context of the patient's scenario. Laboratory testing. 
When it comes to labs, much like diagnostic imaging, the goal is not to delay the progress of the patient to the cath lab. So really, the most important lab is the potassium level because hyperkalemia can provide a STEMI mimic on EKG. Otherwise, things like troponin and looking for anemias and other derangements may be helpful in the global context of the patient's clinical presentation, but they should not delay progress to the cath lab. In this scenario, some of the rapid point-of-care testing can be helpful because they can return potassium results rather quickly, while the main or core lab machinery may take longer. Electrocardiogram. Okay, so the crux of diagnosing ST elevation myocardial infarction involves recognizing some kind of ST elevation, and that means you need an EKG. And when you're looking at that EKG, you're going to use the criteria that have already been established by the European Society of Cardiology, the American College of Cardiology, and the American Heart Association, as well as the World Heart Federation. All of them agree that the definition of ST elevation myocardial infarction involves the following. First, there has to be new ST elevation at the J point in two contiguous leads. That ST elevation needs to be at least a millimeter in all leads except V2 and V3, where the cutoff points are actually different based on age and gender. For men who are age over 40 years old, it's 2 millimeters or more in V2 and V3. For men who are age less than 40, it's actually even higher, 2.5 millimeters or more. In women of any age, there's a lower cut point, and that's one and a half millimeters. So this is another important differentiation to keep in mind when examining an EKG. Additionally, there are some special scenarios. For example, ST elevation of more than a millimeter in lead AVR associated with ST depression in other leads can be suggestive of left main coronary artery occlusion or stenosis. In one study, it was up to 10% of patients, so it's not necessarily the majority of presentations, but it is another thing to be aware of in the correct clinical scenario, it might suggest a left main coronary artery stenosis. There are some other conditions, things like diffuse triple vessel disease, subendocardial ischemia, or tachycardia-related widespread ST depression with some reciprocal changes that can cause AVR to be elevated and other leads to be depressed. But in the correct clinical setting, this is one of those findings that may suggest a critical stenosis of the left main coronary artery. Another special scenario is posterior STEMI or posterior myocardial infarction. Now, this is more rare, only about 3% of acute MIs, but it does involve the posterior circulation of the circumflex artery, and it can present with a specific pattern on EKG. Specifically, you will see that there is ST depression in leads V1, V2, or V3 associated with positive T waves in the standard 12-lead distribution, and then if you perform the posterior lead placement, that is taking leads 4, 5, and 6 and switching them over to the back just under the scapula and labeling them V7, V8, and V9, you might pick up some subtle ST elevation in those leads, and you only need a half a millimeter or more to diagnose posterior STEMI. 
And lastly, the third special scenario is the presence of a left bundle branch block or a paste rhythm. And honestly, all three of these scenarios require some great EKGs and rhythm strips, and this article is chocked full of images. I highly encourage you to go look at these tracings so you can better understand the subtle changes we're talking about. But when it comes to left bundle branch block and paste rhythms, I thought the authors did an outstanding job trying to simplify and clarify the criteria for diagnosing STEMI in these populations. First, the authors talk about the original SCARBOSA criteria that were published in 1996 for the diagnosis of STEMI in the presence of left bundle branch block. And these consisted of three things. First, concordant ST elevation of a millimeter or more in leads with a positive QRS complex. So what does that mean? That means the QRS is mostly positive and the ST elevation is heading in the same direction as the QRS, so concordant, and it's at least a millimeter or more elevated. Second, concordant ST depression of a millimeter or more in leads V1 through V3. And what does that mean? Well, typically in your bundle branch blocks, your ST segment is elevated and your QRS is mostly negative in these anterior leads, this V1, V2, and V3. But if you're looking at the ECG or EKG and your QRS is mostly negative, but your ST segment is also negative, so it's heading in the same direction, it's concordant, and it's depressed more than a millimeter, that also suggests STEMI in the setting of someone with a known bundle branch block or paced rhythm. And the third criteria is excessive discordant ST elevation greater than or equal to five millimeters when the QRS is negative. And again, go look at these tracings, but this means that the QRS is mostly negative, headed south, and the ST segment is grossly elevated, headed north, more than five millimeters from the baseline. That is also highly suggestive. And these three criteria allow you to calculate a score. So pull up your handy MD calculator uh, or MD Calc app and look up the SCARBOSA criteria and plug in your findings. A score greater than or equal to three had a sensitivity of 20%, but a specificity of 98%. And similarly, a score of greater than five had a sensitivity of only about 14%, but a specificity of 100%. So again, the absence of these doesn't exclude STEMI, but the presence of them is highly suggestive of STEMI. Of the three criteria, the third one, which discusses the discordant ST elevation greater than five millimeters, is the least specific. So much so that Smith et al. published a revised criterion for this particular metric. Instead, they suggested that we don't take just the gross five millimeter or more ST elevation of this segment, but instead perform a calculation that measures the ST segment elevation and the negative portion of the QRS as a ratio. And if that ratio is greater than 25%, then that is instead highly suggestive of a STEMI. And again, 
I encourage you to go to the article, look at page eight, see how these measurements are conducted from the baseline downward and from the baseline upward for this mostly negative QRS and how the ratio is calculated. It really isn't complicated, but it's an important tool for your toolbox when it comes to trying to differentiate STEMI in this population with a known bundle branch block or a paste rhythm. And lastly, a few other notes that the authors brought up about some special scenarios. One is the importance of serial ECGs. About 8% of STEMIs are identified on subsequent ECGs. So if you don't see it at first, but the clinical scenario looks like it, you should be repeating these in 15 to 30 minute intervals. Second was reciprocal changes and how that can be helpful in differentiating STEMI from some of the other STEMI mimics like pericarditis. Reciprocal changes are ST depressions you will see in leads opposite of where the occlusion is occurring. So if you have an anterior STEMI, you will see inferior reciprocal changes. If you have an inferior STEMI, you will see lateral reciprocal changes and so on. They do an excellent job in table two of explaining the Pales mnemonic for how to remember which area of the ECG is supposed to have reciprocal changes with ST elevations. And how important it is to recognize that pericarditis does not present with these reciprocal changes. And so that may be a helpful way to differentiate the ST elevation or the diffuse elevation we see in pericarditis with PR depression from the focal ST segment elevation with reciprocal depression that we see in STEMI. Medications. Okay, we've recognized the STEMI We've diagnosed it on the ECG. We've activated the cath lab. It is time to administer some medications to our patient. First step is oxygen. Everybody gets oxygen. Oh, wait, no. Actually, everybody doesn't get oxygen. There is evidence now that says that oxygen can actually be harmful, and it's certainly not helpful if patients don't have hypoxia. So, STEMI guidelines, in fact, all of the chest pain guidelines now say if the patient's oxygen saturation is above 90%, they don't need oxygen. It's not helpful. It certainly does not decrease mortality or reduce infarction size. It can only be harmful if the patient is not hypoxic. So oxygen only if their saturation is less than 90%. What about morphine? Can we use it to relieve pain? Yes, absolutely we can. But it's important to know that patients with non-ST elevation MI who were given morphine actually had higher mortality even after risk adjustment. Does that mean that the morphine was the cause of the higher mortality? No, not necessarily. This isn't enough to be causative. But in light of that evidence, the American College of Emergency Physicians has a clinical policy that was published in 2017 and recommends that clinical judgment be used in deciding whether to give STEMI patients morphine for pain control while awaiting PCI. However, the 2013 American Heart Association guidelines still consider morphine to be the drug of choice for pain relief for STEMI patients. So you certainly have the option, use it judiciously, use it in the right clinical setting, but don't use it in place of nitroglycerin. What about antiplatelet therapy? Yes, absolutely antiplatelet therapy. 
First, we start with the basics, which is aspirin. And the guidelines there recommend anywhere from 162 to 325 milligrams of aspirin. And hopefully for about 60% of our population, they've come by EMS and they've already chewed four baby aspirin on the way to the hospital. So that's step number one. Then we've got some options. We've got clopidogrel, we've got prazogrel, and we've got ticagrelor. All of these are antiplatelet agents, and which one you give can be based on clinical scenario and your suspicion for specific disease, but there's a great section in the article that describes the utility of these medications. To summarize, first, this should already be institutionally protocoled wherever you're working. So if you don't already know which of these three medications you're given for an acute STEMI, there should really be a protocol to define that approach. You don't want to be standing there staring at a STEMI patient trying to decide between the three. Typically, there's a conversation that's taking place between us and the interventional cardiologist to determine which agent they prefer to give the patient up front, and then that one is used for all comers. There is some evidence that clopidogrel might be associated with less bleeding, but not quite the same antiplatelet effect as prazogrel and ticagrelor, and so have that discussion with your cardiology colleagues and decide which one they prefer and make sure you have it stocked and ready to give from your medication dispensing machine in the emergency department. Next is nitroglycerin. It's something we give frequently and give pre-hospital sublingual and then in-hospital intravenously to decrease left ventricular preload and increase coronary artery blood flow. There should be no hesitance about administering it. There is always discussion about whether or not it's going to cause excessive hypotension in patients experiencing inferior ST elevation myocardial infarction, but the truth is giving it IV is very, very short acting. It can always be turned off. You can always give a fluid bolus and it's okay to start a little lower and then gradually progress upward in that particular population of patients. And lastly, there's beta blockers. The 2013 American Heart Association STEMI guidelines recommend beta blockers for all patients with STEMI, but within the first 24 hours of treatment, barring any contraindications, and really regardless of treatment, whether that's PCI, fibrinolysis, or neither. So beta blockers do not necessarily need to be started in the emergency department, but they are recommended to be given in the first 24 hours. Most of us will not necessarily be focused on that administration up front prior to PCI. Thrombolytics. Okay, when we're talking about reperfusion therapy, we're talking about reperfusing the coronary arteries either in the cath lab or by administering thrombolytics. If you work at a hospital with a cath lab, people are urgently taken for PCI within 12 hours of onset of symptoms, and then between 12 and 24 hours, it's still reasonable. It's not necessarily a level 1A recommendation, but still reasonable to do. If you cannot get the patient to a cath lab within 120 minutes of arrival at your facility, then it's still recommended that they receive thrombolysis for reperfusion. And in this category, we've got several options. And once again, our authors did an outstanding job demonstrating to us the evidence for why we should choose one versus another. There's an outstanding table, table number four on page 12 of the article that discusses the different dosing for each of the agents based on weight. 
and they do a good job describing the different agents and the benefits of each. Now, these agents fall into two categories. There are three in the fibrin-specific category. That's tenecteplase, retoplase, and altoplase. And there is one that is not fibrin-specific, and that's streptokinase. One of the important things to keep in mind about streptokinase is that it's no longer available in the United States. And additionally, it's very highly antigenic, which means that there's an absolute contraindication to give it to someone who has already received it within the past six months. Nevertheless, the guidelines from 2013, American Heart Association still recommend administering fibrinolytics for STEMI patients with ischemic symptoms within the prior 12 hours when PCI is not available within 120 minutes of first medical contact. Now, that counts for EMS time as well. So let's say it took them 30 minutes from EMS arrival till they got to your emergency department, and then there's going to be another 70 or 80 minutes to transfer them from your facility to another facility that has the cath lab available. Plus, there's a delay for the treatment time at your facility. Now we're butting up against that 120-minute window and we should be considering giving this patient fibrinolytics. Now, again, this is not a decision that you want to try and mull over in the presence of the STEMI patient right in front of you. What you really need is for this to be protocolized in advance. So if you know your transferring facility is far away and this patient isn't going to make it there in 120 minutes, it should be protocol to administer the fibrinolytics. And when you're going to give fibrinolytics, it's important also to keep in mind the 2017 ASEP clinical policy, which reminds us of the recommendation for reduced dosing for any patient who's over 75 years old. And if you're giving tenecteplase, that's half dose. And one last point to make about reperfusion therapy is the presence of reperfusion dysrhythmias. Now, if you work at a center with a cath lab, you're probably not seeing these because they get rushed to the cath lab and then your cardiology colleagues are dealing with them. But if you're going to give fibrinolytics, it's important to remember that dysrhythmias are common. Now, typically these are premature ventricular contractions, sustained or non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, ventricular fibrillation, but there is this entity called accelerated idioventricular rhythm. So this is actually something that looks like a ventricular escape rhythm, but the rate is faster. It's over 50 beats versus what you see in a ventricular escape, somewhere around 20 to 40 beats a minute. And the accelerated idioventricular rhythm is actually relatively well-tolerated and self-limited. The important thing to remember is that once the sinus rate exceeds the ventricular rate, this dysrhythmia goes away. And if you happen to treat this with some antiarrhythmic medication, that can actually be harmful to patients in this state of their recovery and cause what the authors call hemodynamic collapse, which sounds terrifying. So avoid the antiarrhythmics in these patients if you see this accelerated idioventricular rhythm and just wait for the sinus rhythm to catch up and exceed it and this should go away. Anticoagulation. Okay, so we talked about antiplatelet therapy and reperfusion therapy and then there's just good old heparin. Heparin is still recommended. In fact, unfractionated heparin is in the 2013 AHA guidelines 
at a 70 to 100 unit per kilo IV bolus, followed by an infusion. And if you're giving a 2B3A receptor antagonist, they just half that amount and continue the infusion. It's typically recommended that it continues for a minimum of 48 hours after PCI or fibrinolytic therapy. And again, this is typically not a time period that we are managing these patients for. So just know you can give the bolus, start the infusion along with all of the other medication we've already talked about, and that's safe for the patient. Special circumstances. This is an excellent section of the article and takes the time to mention a few populations which are considered special circumstances because they have higher mortality rates. So there are gender differences, especially when we're talking about STEMI, even though there are the same risk factors in men and women. Since the 1980s, women have actually had higher mortality, and this is thought to be attributed to their gender. So the risk factors should be the same. The history of hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, and obesity are all the same. The presentations are more likely to include non-chest pain type symptoms, and that makes it a little bit more challenging, but treatment protocols should hopefully alleviate some of these differences we see. Elderly patients are also at higher risk, especially from fibrinolytics, and so PCI is still recommended for this population. They also have more atypical or less of the what we consider typical presentations with chest pain. They have more diaphoresis, nausea, and vomiting, and syncope, and dyspnea, some of those things that will hopefully trigger us to obtain that initial EKG. There is also the patient population that uses cocaine. These patients are also at risk for coronary vascular changes that can cause alterations in their platelet function and coagulation and lead to coronary thrombosis, even in the absence of other risk factors and even in younger patients. So these patients are actually at higher risk for thrombosis, and it's recommended that they also be aggressively taken to the cath lab for PCI. And finally, there's the population of patients who have COVID-19. Now, we have been at this for almost a year, and if you haven't encountered the STEMI patient with perhaps COVID, then you're going to have this conversation at some point, and it's important to have all of this addressed ahead of time before the patient rolls in the door. But multiple societies, including the American Heart Association, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the American College of Cardiology, assert that these patients need to be treated primarily for their STEMI just like any other patient and taken to the cath lab for PCI. They do have some COVID-19-related STEMI mimics and sometimes echocardiography and other diagnostic testing is necessary in order to tease out the exact diagnosis. But once you know you're dealing with STEMI, it's important to move on and get them to the cath lab despite the presence of COVID-19. And that's a wrap for the January article of Emergency Medicine Practice. Thank you to our authors for an outstanding review of ST Elevation MI, and thank you to you for listening. Again, I encourage you to go to ebmedicine.net and take a look at the brand new layout, all the photos and the beautiful visuals in each one of these issues, especially in this month's issue. So many rhythm strips and EKGs. It's a beautiful masterpiece to look at. Until next month, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Stay safe, everyone.